This sermon, Paul's last visit to Jerusalem, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, November 20th, 2022, at Sovereign Grace Church. If you would stand with me, and if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. If you're new to us this morning, it's a joy for all of us to have you here. It's good to have you here. I believe in God's providence. You've been delivered here by him so that you would hear his word. We've all been brought together this morning in his providence, this kind care of his church, that we would hear this. This is why we're here. We're here for his word. We're going to begin in verse 17, and we're going to read through verse 26. Luke writes these words, God's word. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Went in with us, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, How many thousands there are among the Jews of who have believed? They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them to not circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter about our judgment that they should abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from that which has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Pray with me. Holy Spirit, my, my request, it's a desperate request, is that you would be at work at the preaching of the word in such a way that Jesus would be magnified, 
And that our hearts would be lifted up and to see Him all the more clearly. We would be caught up in our Savior. Holy Spirit, empower the preaching of Your Word. Superintend the words that hopefully would come alongside and lift the Word up. The Word. Lord, I pray that you would be merciful to our gathering. In this room are those so desperately need your mercy. So come and save, Lord, while the word is preached, while Jesus, the Savior, is magnified to the glory of the Father only empowered by the Spirit. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. Now for me, if you're anything like me, and I don't like saying that all the time, but sometimes I like saying that because I don't want to like join you into my crazy, ill-informed world often. But if you are like me in this moment, when you get to verse 21... It has two halves. Sometimes you'll see that if you're reading a commentary. It'll have like verse 21a and b. There is a radical shift between a and b in this, in this one verse. Look there with me, if you would. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And it's, it's as if they draw a breath, and the very next thing comes is actually when you find out what follows. And as we dig into this, it's actually going to shock us what they request of Paul. So they hear Paul's testimony. They're amazed to the point that they glorify God. And now, okay, now, in in an immediate shift to give Paul some instruction about what he needs to do now that he's visited this church in Jerusalem. And it's very abrupt. So let's consider that. But as we look at this, I think it's important for me to say this. Today's text is rooted in a context, maybe another way we could describe it for us, and I'll try to use an illustration, is the context, for it to be understood, the context of this text, these texts, for it to be understood and for it to be considered, this text will not be rightly and more fully understood if we ignore this context. This text swims with a deep context, a deeper context that goes out into this letter that Luke is writing this account in Acts. It goes out. So the context of what we've just read is a little bit larger context. So the water's more deep around it, but also there is the grander context of the New Testament and theology regarding things like the gospel and the law, grace, Christ's sacrifice, and now these ceremonies or these rites or this purification. All of this context is in a near context and in a larger context, as if it were in a massive basin. So imagine with me a massive basin basin of water that's full of clear understanding and meaning of the text. The closer text here in Acts, the wider context of the Bible. And if we were to pull the plug on this basin and let it drain out and somehow only capture this one text then here's the trouble that we'll run into. We'll be left with some good stuff, but that good stuff will be drained 
of much of its meaning and understanding and therefore leaving us possibly to speculation, (laughs) that's an understatement, and uh, unanswered questions that are already beginning to be formed in our mind if you've been paying attention to this text and even worse, error. So join with me and let's hold the plug in on the basin of the context and let's consider this text together. And you'll see why. This is a brief encounter that is beginning a larger section that we're not going to visit until the beginning of the year sometime. And so I think it's helpful for us to look back a little bit and look forward only briefly as we do this. My hope is that I not pull the plug on this, but my desire is that you would hear the word clearly preached, but that Christ would be honored and exalted, certainly but not apart from us, that he be honored and exalted in such a way that our hearts are enraptured and engulfed in the person, the magnitude and his majesty of Jesus Christ, that you would, by the end of this message, love him all the more again of what we're going to look at. So verse 17, now look back with me there at the beginning of our section today, opens with these words. When we had come to Jerusalem... It is clear in the text right before this that for Paul, even through Agabus' prophecy from the Holy Spirit, how's that for clarity? He is facing a clear and present danger in verses 10 and 11. So 17, those words in 17, when we had come to Jerusalem are right on the heels of what we hear in verses 10 and 11. Agabus, remember he says this, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, Paul's belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Spoiler alert, the prophecy is fulfilled. So here in verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem is packed with anticipation of like what's going to happen. What's going to happen? In Ephesus, in chapter 19, Paul desired to go into the massive theater. Remember the chanting of, great is Artemis, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And into a 30,000, essentially, stadium of people, the riot and the mob has broke through. And they've taken some of Paul's companions and have drugged them into the stadium. Paul desires to go into this massive stadium following the riot who were dragging in his brothers, his disciples, and his friends were able at this point, and what's interesting about this context is his friends, at least in chapter 19, were able to dissuade Paul from going in, but not this time. Paul's in. He's in Jerusalem. And there's no turning back. So that you know, Paul is arrested, finally. He is no longer, for the rest of his life, a free man, according to the law. He's now bound to the end. So we're going to ask a question of the text. Pondering this larger question, why was Paul so determined to go in Jerusalem? Here's a question we're going to ask. Why did Paul do what he did in today's text? 
There's two things that are occurring. They're verses 19 and verses 26. The beginning, more or less, and the end tell us there are two things that Paul has done in this text. Paul's actions are specifically mentioned. Verse 19, Paul details one after or one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles in his ministry. Paul testifies. Paul tells the story of the gospel mission. Verse 19. Verse 26. Here's the second thing that Paul does in our text today. Paul submits to the questionable request. We'll consider that. But he submits to the questionable request of the Jerusalem elders in verse 29. Has these words. Paul took them in. The next day he purified himself. Those are the two things that he has done. So we are asking why. Why did Paul do these things? And like in my illustration a minute ago about the basin, with the Bible in our hands, we have to ask, why did he do this? This is not open for speculation. It's not open for you and I to ponder, well, maybe it was this or that. We're at least not allowed to do that without holding a tight grip on the text and the context, keeping the basin full of its meaning. Why did Paul do what he did? Number one, explicitly in verse 19. And then we're going to look also at verses 21a. And then we're also going to go back again to verse 13, the context, the basin. So here's 19 and 20. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard this, they glorified him. Why did Paul do this? Christ was worth it to him. So why is Paul doing this one thing? Why is he telling them? It's because Christ means the world to him. God's glory, Christ's glory is worth it to Paul. We're asking that question. Why did Paul do this? And the very first reason he says is one by one, he's going to tell them what God has done. And the result is exactly what he is seeking to desire. He does this so that God would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified. And Paul revisits in detail each and every single thing that God has done in his recent journey through the Gentile area. Hughes would write this, the Ephesians riots that came about because of the social impact of the gospel context. The power of the gospel in Athens and Corinth context. The apostles escaping his would-be assassins context. This is why, this is why every detail, every detail that he's telling, even including poor uh, Eutychus, swan dive and miraculous raising from the dead out the window of the third floor of the building while Paul preached on into the night. Why labor to tell each and every detail. Now look, if you had spent time, use your sanctified imagination just for a minute, the more that we have continued to get to know Paul, and boy, don't we know him from Acts? Don't we know him from the preached word we have heard week after week after week? You've got to know Paul. What is he like? Oh, he's more than glad to tell you and to go on and on. Because in the end, what's been preached has not been about Paul. What Acts has not been about has not been Paul. Paul is referenced a lot. We're just following on the heels of Paul. But Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. 
All the while we discover what Paul is like, he has been pointing us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is blown away at his own salvation. He should not be saved, is the way he would describe it. Why does Paul do what he is doing? He does it, and he labors at it, and he goes into detail because Christ is worth it. It's worth it to Paul to slow down and tell that story again. And if I'm one of his disciples, I'm like, I have heard this story over and over and over again. He keeps telling them. He tells them in the next town what happened in the last town and the one before that. He gets to the third town. He tells them about the one before that in the fourth town and the fifth town. And as he moves on, Paul goes on in detail over and over and over again to glorify the Savior. Is that not the effect that it has on you and I when we hear the same old story again and again and again? We're reminded again, yes, Christ is amazing. We're reminded again, God is good, and he should not be good to me. I should only receive his wrath. They glorify God. This is exactly why Paul has done what he has done. Jesus is worth it to Paul. Christ is worth it for Paul. From the moment of his salvation, Paul did what he did so that, which he would refer to as the first importance would be declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the cross of Christ, what we use around here as the shorthand for Jesus Christ and him crucified, raised on the third day, glorified and raised into heaven. You know, when I was a young man and I had been saved for several years, I had a growing sense that I was called to preach Christ as pastor. And it was submitted to the men around me. And so I just had this internal sense, but I desperately needed the men around me to point the finger to confirm that. Thank God that we were taught well in our church. That was needed. But the church, they needed to see it as well. They needed to see, yeah, yeah, we see it. We see that he's called. But in that time frame of a private, personal sense of call, bear with me. I don't have time to unpack that. You can ask me afterwards. There was an old Dallas home song. If you're old and you've been a Christian a long time, you're probably like, I remember him. And we stopped singing him years ago. Well, there's reasons why. The guy's a good guy. But we've just moved on. You go back and listen to the song. If you find it online, great. The name of the song is The Image of the Man. I'm just begging you not to go there now and play it out loud. <laughs> the opening line in this old song with the ringing mandolin, that clues you into the style of music I liked back then. Disco ruined it later. Why? Do I do the things I do? He sings. And he'll go on to say, there's a, there's a picture in my mind that time can't erase. There's a memory of days gone by that helps me keep my place. I, I'm a simple guy. Simple songs are good for me. Listen to these lyrics. It's in the front of my mind and in the back of my mind, to the left and to the right, there's an image of a man on a cross. Theological alert to some of the other items in the song. 
The bridge in the course goes on like this, and it's worth quoting. I'm constrained by the love of Christ. I'm compelled to express his light. Because it's country music, folks. Because in the front of my mind and in the back of my mind, to the left and to the right, there's an image of a man on a cross. Paul did what he did because he was constrained by the love of Christ. Paul did what he did so that Jesus would be glorified. Verse 20a, accomplished. Christ is magnified. But listen to verse 13. Go back into this basin of the context. He's desiring to go to Jerusalem. They're begging him not to go. Prophecy saying it's not going to go well for you. And Paul's words in verse 13, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I don't think he's making that up. I think he really is affected by the affection of the people for him and their desperation for not going in. Why, they had done it before. They had sought to save Paul's life, to keep him from going in. Surely he was going to be torn apart. Surely now when he goes into Jerusalem, we're going to lose Paul. Paul says this, for I am ready. I am ready. And I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even die in Jerusalem. But here's why. That's impacting enough. What this guy's going to do is pretty gutsy. But there is motivation under this. It is for the name of the Lord Jesus. This is why Paul does what he does. So we're asking that question. Why did Paul do what he did? He did it. Because Christ was worth it. Well, the second one He did it because Christ's church is worth it. This one's going to require some unpacking, so I want you to bear with me as we go through this. Someone is going to need to save me with a tissue because I did not bring one up here, and actually that'll save you if I get a tissue. Thank you. Sorry, sound team. So here's the next section in this text. Verses 20b And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews? Those opening words begin a section down to verse 25. Let's consider them one by one. Verse 20b. The Jewish believers that are zealous for the law. That's the way it's described. There are thousands that are among the Jews. And of those who have believed, they are all jealous, excuse me, zealous for the law. Zealous for the law. The law. Jewish believers here, zealous for the law, is going to raise an issue in our minds and in our understanding of the scriptures and certainly the New Testament gospel on this matter about their zealousness for the law. And so let the commentaries and further studies serve you. Let though what is said now serve you considering this. It's an issue and a reason that Paul will elsewhere refer to their struggle as weakness. A believer's zealousness for the law, Moses' laws, the Mosaic law, the ceremony, the rites, the celebrations, that affinity to the law, if held onto too tightly as a believer. See, I can't unpack all of this, but we do know later in other texts, Paul will refer to that as weakness. But in every context where the weakness is revealed, 
deference to the weak is preached. That's amazing. Rather than just calling out the weakness, here's the example. About eating and drinking. You all remember the text? Go look it up. But eating and drinking, we're going to struggle. In this case, eating was like our drinking of that day. You good up a good old Baptist boy, I good up a good old Pentecostal boy. Drinking, it was bad. Because we know what came after drinking, dancing. And so the humor goes on. Well, in their day, eating just is bad in that sense. But to hold that belief was described as a weakness. So those of you who are strong in Christ, those of you who are free in Christ, bear with their weakness. Abstain to not cause them to stumble. All this effort put in doesn't mean the weak aren't ever addressed. And we'll comment on their weakness here in a minute. The deference is always present. So verse 20b begins to reveal there's a weakness and it's that zealousness for the law. I'm going to consider that again in another way in just a minute. Verse 21, Jewish believers were believing slanderous rumors, half-truths, and misrepresentations. Let's look at that. Verse 21, and they have told, they, what, excuse me, and they have been told about you. But here's what they had heard about Paul. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. And it'll go on a little bit later in verse 24. Thus we'll all know that there is nothing in the way, go on and on, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. They have a deep-seated struggle. This was nothing new to Paul, by the way, to be uh, rumored about, to be slandered publicly and privately, for people to always wonder about him, to look at him with that querying eye and that deep-seated, ah, I don't know about this guy. This was not new to Paul. He was relentlessly followed and mocked and slandered and accused and confronted and challenged and charged. I think it's safe to say this. The Apostle Paul, long before the internet, was the most stalked and trolled apostle. Just looking, just looking for any way to trip him up. Sounds like he's following in Jesus' steps, doesn't it? In verse 22, we discover the elders' fears about these zealous people and what they might do. So verse 22, what then is to be done? Maybe in a way, a little bit of the leadership wringing of their hands, like this one, we don't know how to deal with this. Now that you're here, Paul, I mean, when you weren't here, this wasn't gonna be a big deal. It's just us, just the Jews, we're good. Well, here you come, and they believe some things about you. What are we gonna do? They'll certainly hear that you're here. So there's fear as well. The effect was that the health of this church and the unity of this church is at stake. The elders, I think, wisely see that. This is their church. These are the people that they care for. These are the people that they have been shepherding. And now this visiting pastor 
is now coming, this visiting apostle, and they've heard about Paul, but there's some of the things that they've heard about Paul are not correct. We've not been able to dispel them. So here we are. What are we going to do about this? The verses 23 through 24, let's consider this for a minute. The steps that they pick, the steps that they have chosen or thought to dispel this information about Paul and to foster the unity and so on. Let's read those words together. So do therefore what we tell you. This is actually, if you ask me, this is pretty bold. But I'll commend this to those guys and their day and things we don't know about today, that they would feel this kind of courage to speak to this apostle like this. Well, maybe it's because it's James, Jesus' half-brother. He's already feeling he's in. <laughs> but he's also the leader of this church. And this is a key church. Let's not neglect this. While there might be some things that would cause us now to be careful not to look back now at the Jerusalem church with a querying eye like, well, I wonder what's wrong with these people. Don't do that. See what their struggle is for what it is. Be careful about even our own slanderous temptation now about this church. But let's hear what's going on. They're seeking to dispel this information. We have these four men that are under a vow. It's very likely what's called a Nazarite vow. Vow. Do therefore what we tell you. Well, these men are under this vow. Take them, purify yourself along with them. <laughs> Listen to this. Pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. This is a strange request in our day. It's like, you need to go, you need to pick up these guys, these, these missionaries or these guys that are part of our church, and uh, they can't afford what they need to do, and you're going to have to pay for it. And you've got to drop them off and get a haircut. That's the way it feels to us, doesn't it? Well, the context of the scriptures and the wider understanding of scriptures is, this is a vow where these men had set themselves apart for devotion to the Lord, right or wrong, they've done this. They're Christians, they're part of the church, these elders know about these men, and they have let their hair grow long over this time frame. And at the end of this vow, they shave their heads, announcing the end of the vow. Sacrifices are made. And these men go through the final steps of the purification rite. And now they're good. They now can fellowship again with the people. They now can rejoin the attendants at the, at the uh, temple in this case. See why there's a lot more study on our part needed? But I'm going to lean just for a minute on these verses 23, 24. I'm going to go a little bit further. Guard your hearts with anything that's said at this point. There's a long distance between us and them and what's going on. So I want to be careful. We can't take our Gentile Christianity, which is what we have, more or less, and then superimpose this on top of what's going on and completely judge it all. We can't do that. But I'll quote Calvin just briefly. It's a questionable, at least, effort on their part. And Calvin would go as far as to say a foolish effort on their part. Not necessarily foolish in all of its content. He's not going into these men's observation of these rites compared to their love and affections for Jesus and his complete sacrifice of atonement that has occurred. He's saying foolish meaning it's probably incomplete. A little bit of a misstep. But foolish meaning it doesn't accomplish what the elders are hoping that it would accomplish. We know that from the text. It's going to go on. The very thing Paul does in listening to them doesn't do what they're hoping to do. They're trying to guard the unity of the church. It doesn't work. 
Having Paul go through this rite and join these men, which we'll discover more about, it doesn't work. So Calvin says, and knowing it, hindsight is 2020. he says it's foolish. And it's here where I see one of the dangers of how we respond to misinformation ourselves. And this is really important about what's going on in this context. At times, we must let it go, and at times, we must correct it. So someone has communicated a rumor and misinformation and slander about us or about someone that we know that's, in, that's important uh, to us on that. Sometimes we have to just let it go. Sometimes we do have to correct it. It, has, it could be that damaging. We have to correct it. Study 1 Corinthians and you'll see where Paul will defend himself on some of the charges that it brought against him. While in this case, he doesn't defend himself. Sometimes we will and sometimes we won't. We have to trust God's judgment in this as well. Paul will go as far as to say in 1 Corinthians, he's going to let Christ be his judge on some of these. So he won't even defend it before them. He'll make a statement about, don't let others judge you. And I'm not even going to let Christ, I mean, I'm not even going to judge myself, but I'm going to let Christ judge me. Here, though, an effort is being proposed that will counter the lies and actions and misrepresentations that will hopefully speak a louder than words, an action that will speak louder than words, hopefully in their minds, and to the end, it was a foolish attempt. Verse 25, add some clarity, though. What we're asking you to do, Paul, we're not asking that all the Gentiles do this. We've already sent them a letter. We're not going to add another, understand that, yoke or burden to this. Here's the affliction that this church and elders is struggling with. It's a twofold affliction, the way I'll describe it. One is coupled with their zeal for the law, and alongside of that, that zeal for the law is a defiling, slanderous rumor on a leader or another member of the same church and body. So this first part of their affliction, I call it that, is because Calvin will say they were addicted to their observations and their ceremonies. Now look, you and I may not be like, of course, these guys, these Jews, they need to get a grip on this. Well, actually, just reverse a little bit into the context of Ephesians. That's us. We're the Jews. Remember, the two people, the Jews and the Gentiles. In this sense, we're no different than the Jews in this case. Remember what's going on with the Gentiles? We find out as the word is preached and Christ is exalted, they privately had been looking at books of sorcery, holding on to spells. They're going sometimes to these temples. And they're believers. We know elsewhere in context. They're still given over into sexual immorality. They're still wrestling with these same things. By the way, we could say the same with Calvin. We were addicted to our observations and our ceremonies. This just happens to be Jewish in nature. In a sense, they grew up. These Jewish believers grew up in this water. Here in Jerusalem, the elixir of the formalities, the rites, the ceremonies, it pulled on them day after day after day. Jerusalem is not big. It's always an earshot. They could hear it. They could smell it. It is, in that sense, who they are. Freedom from the ceremonies of the law is extra difficult for them. Deference to the weak is needed. 
The second part of their affliction is, in addition to this weakness and their loving of the law, they're just like, don't blow it, don't blow it on the law, don't blow it on these ceremonies, don't do that, is they've heard a slanderous report about Paul that is multifaceted. The effect of the gossip, the effect of the gospel is real. And the elders know it. They've not been able to address this. I don't know what their efforts have been to address this. We don't know what kind of social media blitz they've done, whatever that looks like in Jerusalem at the time. Like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not what Paul has done. This is not what Paul has said. No, this is what he said. Let's consider something just for a minute that Kent Hughes describes when it comes to gossip and slander. And I think this will help us understand this affliction that they have also. Kent Hughes writes this. In an eastern land, a woman, it's like a parable, so just bear with that. In the eastern land, a woman repeated a bit of gossip about a neighbor, and within a short time, the whole town knew the story. The slandered person was deeply hurt and most unhappy. But then the lady responsible for spreading the rumor learned that it was completely untrue. So she went to a wise old sage to find out what she could do to repair the damage. After listening to her, he said, go to the marketplace, purchase a fowl, and kill it. Then on your way home, pluck its feathers one by one and drop them along the path. Though surprised by the unusual unusual advice, the woman did as she was told. The next day, she informed the man that she had done as instructed. Now go, he says, now go and collect all the feathers and bring them back to me, this wise old sage said. The lady followed the same path, but to her dismay, the wind had blown all the feathers away after searching all day. She returned with only two or three in hand. You see, said the old wise man, it's easy to drop them. It's impossible to pick them all back up. Likewise, Kent Hughes writes, it does not take much to spread false rumor, but you can never completely undo that wrong. We Christians must take heart. They love the law. That's hard enough. And now they believe something about Paul. And those two combined, he does not have a chance. And you can tell ahead of time, this is going to be a weak effort. So the church is suffering under this double affliction. The law that seemingly cannot be carried out more fully. This story about Paul, they cannot completely shake. So in that sense, knowing that Christ loves this church, that's infirmed, he loves Christ's church so much, he's willing to listen to these men. It was in this sense, according to one of the commentators, which I think is also Calvin. It was nothing then for Paul to fall in on this plan. Here's some things that we want to hold on to. Paul does not undermine the integrity of the gospel himself in these, either of these rites, whether it would have been the Nazarene rite or maybe Paul joining with another type of rite. In the end, both of these rites that Paul would have followed in this would have been for the purpose of, in the end, to thank God for the answered prayers. Well, all the more, an apostle for Christ would have much to thank God 
for prayer. Of course, I can follow in on this right. This is no big deal to me. And as far as the concern about, are you undermining what you told the Gentiles? You don't have to follow the law. You tell the, Gen- the Jews, they are free from this. They do not have to follow these things. You've told them that. Are you going to undermine it? Paul said, I'm not going to undermine it because that's not what I'm doing. I'm not going in to earn God's favor. I'm going in because I want the church to be healed. I want this matter that's so concerning to be dispelled. I would join the elders on this. I'm with you, elders. I'll do this. He desired to exalt Christ in all things and to seek the strengthening of Christ's church. If he was willing, consider this, if he was willing to face imprisonment and even death, then following a right is nothing for him. Consider that. He's not undermining the gospel. The integrity of the gospel remains intact. Why would he not do this? He's willing to go all the way to the end with his very life. He'll do this. We know Paul's commitment to the integrity of the gospel is unshaken. This request could possibly advance the mission of the gospel by removing a distracting barrier. If there's any hope for that, Paul was in. While it was indeed an imperfect effort, and it looked like it was not the best effort in Paul, even probably in Paul's mind, to address the situation. He so loved Christ's church that he would do this. Personally slandered? Yes. Not trusted? In some cases, no. Accused? Often. His reputation is not the first thing he's concerned about. Of first importance is the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. In so many words, I will do this for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his church. Christ would be exalted and that the church would be healed. That I might gain Christ, but that the saints in his body would gain Christ as well. His testimony reveals to Paul's, Paul's own, his own testimony reveals Paul's heart for his church. Because he'll tell that story again and again. It was Jesus' body. Paul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says to him. Paul sees it is truly the dearest place on earth, Christ's church, because Jesus has shed his own blood for his church. Of course I would do this thing. Is the church weak at times? Yes, it is. Is the church nearsighted at times? Yes, it is. Does she need care and help at times? Actually, all the time. Will she stumble at times? Just hang out with us. By the end of the evening, you'll find out. She has two left feet in this gospel dance, doesn't she? But she is precious to Paul because she is precious to Jesus. He shed his blood for the church. Paul was shed his blood for the church differently, but he'd be willing to do it. Christ is worth it. That's why he did it. Christ's church is worth it. That's why he did it. Why would Paul do these things? Well, the third is in the wider context, but is informed certainly in this context. Paul's arrested. Church is in jeopardy. His presence alone is disruptive. But there is an underpinning of something I believe emerges in verse 39. Let's go there. So now move in this basin over to that deeper water to verse 39. 
Paul, at this point, has been arrested. We'll let that message be preached more fully. Here's a curious, interesting moment in the message, in the, uh, in the text. The Roman commander that has now bound Paul in two chains to rescue him, he's arrested. That's, that's how bad things are. He's arrested and bound to two chains. This Roman guy has no idea who this is. And you'll know this. Verse 38. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? <laughs> what a cool accusation in a way. <laughs> Completely unaware of who stands before him. As often the Roman commanders are in the narratives. Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. Listen to these words. Let them inform this last point. I beg you, permit me to speak to these people. I beg you, let me Permit me to speak to these people. His kinsmen are worth it. Paul, and we'll find that here in a little bit, but Paul knows these are Christians. I mean, excuse me, these are Jewish people with this struggle. Jewish Christians, but Jewish in and of themselves. And he also has that wider desire for those of his kinsmen who are, by the way, part of this crowd that are going to have him ripped apart. So here, in verse 20b and 26, the two bookends on our text, back over there. If I lost you over in 39, go back. B, you see, brother, how many thousands of people that believe that you're zealous for the law. And down here in verse 26, then Paul took the men the next day, and so on. So that we don't drain this text of meaning. I've widened the context so that we can hear this. Paul does what he does for the love of his kinsmen. His kinsmen are worth it. Christ is worth it. Christ's church is worth it. We're going to hear in a second, Christ's kinsmen, Paul's kinsmen, they're worth this. They're worth it to him. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, to the Jews I become a Jew in order to win the Jews to those under the law, I became as one under the law, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. He has his kinsmen, those under the law, those caught in the law, those infirmed with their love for the law so much it affects even their joining of the church. Back into the closer proximity of our text. He says to this uninformed Roman commander, I beg you, I beg you. The words in the original language arrest our attention to Paul's deep-seated anguish and trouble and desire and hope. I beg you, I beg you, I beg you, let me speak to them. Romans 9, 1 through 3, we'll hear this. Am I speaking the truth in Christ? I am not lying. My conscience bears witness to me. This is actually on the heels of Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Paul opens that very next attached statement. Am I speaking the truth in Christ? I am not lying. My conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for those I could wish that I, for I, 
For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race according to the flesh, it is Christ who is overall blessed forever. Amen. For the sake of my brothers, I beg you, let me talk to them. Give me the mic. I want to speak to my friends, my family. For you and I, that's everybody else around us. That's the Gentiles all around us. I beg you, Lord, give me an opportunity to speak of Christ to those that are my kinsmen in the flesh. And in particular, Paul has on his mind his weak kinsmen and his lost kinsmen. His love for them could not be shaken. He is bound in the presence of a Roman commander. And the first thing on his mind is not seething anger and return accusation, laying out all the facts as it were so that he could be set free. Bound, his wrists already scarred from being bound over and over and over again, bound in two chains. Let me speak to them. He loves his kinsmen. These are his kinsmen. Their hate-filled rejection of Jesus, their spiritual darkness, their idol of the law rather than their love and worship of God. On the outside, they looked healthy, yet on the inside, they were rotting away. They were whitewashed tombs. They scurried around like a fleeing brood of vipers. Their mouths were filled with loud, self-exalting prayers as they stood on the corner of the marketplace. They saw with their very own eyes Christ's miracles, and these same eyes that saw Christ's miracles then turned and searched for stones and hammers and nails. They were spiritually blind. They could not long, they, they could hear the long-awaited Messiah's very voice across his vocal cords as Jesus would draw the breath and offer them forgiveness tell them that they needed to be clean and that God had now sent him the promised Messiah. Eternal life was now right before him. They could hear his long-awaited voice. They would draw a breath. And with their cries, they would crucify, crucify, crucify him. They were Spiritually, death. Paul loved them all the more. He loved them. Romans 9, 2. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my kinsmen. Followed by a shocking willingness to give up his own salvation in that text that they could be saved. This is inexplicable if you understand Paul. He saw that he was clearly chosen by Christ. He was always shocked by God's calling of him and God's salvation of him. His disposition towards himself. He had counted all the things that he had come to as lost. He was willing to die. He will die for Christ. He was willing to to give up that moment 
that he would be welcomed in by the Savior's same voice. Well done, good and faithful servant. To only enter into screams of hell and torment forever. If he knew that his kinsmen could be saved. This is not fluff. This is the apostle. So saw Christ worth it. So saw his church. Saw you worth it. Saw his kinsmen, his lost ones, worth it. He was willing to die, even exchanging his salvation. Paul knew them all too well. Our wider context, I persecuted the way to the death. Paul could when he closed his eyes, could still see the stones fly as he gladly watched each one make its mark on Stephen as he dropped to the dirt. The apostle's heart was filled with an immovable love for Christ. He's astonished at being loved by Christ. Paul becomes a servant to Jesus and seeks to only build Christ's church all the more, seek for her comfort, her good, and her will. Paul will, until his dying breath, preach hope, hope. The whole title of our series out of, out of Acts. Hope, hope, hope for his lost brothers and sisters and his kinsmen. Charles Spurgeon, you're going to hear it again. If, sir, if sinners be damned, let them, let them, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. In the teeth of his exertions, Paul says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Rick, if you could come forward. Paul did what he did because Christ was worth it. Christ's church was worth it. Paul's people, Christ's people were worth it. So here's our question. Is Christ worth it to you, to me? And is his church worth it to you and to me? Are your lost loved ones, your friends, your neighbors, your stranger at the ball game, the student in your class, they're your kinsmen. Are they worth it to you? What is one thing? Okay, two things that I can do this week to grow in my love for Christ, you might ask. Number one, I would submit then an honest, humble return to the foot of the cross, the gospel, to that time in your life when Christ saved you, this will revive your affections for Jesus. Go honestly and humbly. And number two, honestly and humbly, tell someone that same old story of when Christ saved you, and you'll find the effect is twofold. It has the possibility of saving them as you share Christ with them and again reminding you that you have been saved and your affections will grow. 
Paul did this constantly. He revisited again and again Christ and him crucified. And then he would tell his same old story. I can imagine this missionary's companions whispering, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it. And then, with that same old familiar story, as Paul would begin to get to that one part. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven shone around me. And at that moment, Paul's voice crack and fade into the back of his companions' minds, in the back of our minds. And we begin to hear our story retold. Driving home that night with Brian Robbins in the car, I could not shake the stare of the gospel on my soul. Oh, it looked like Chuck Mosley's stare across the room at me. As if no one else was in the room. I heard Christ pierce my soul and reveal his salvation to me. All the lust and the pornography begin to lose its luster. Go honestly to your story. Go to the broken relationships the current failings and sin that you're caught in, go honestly to the cross. Find Christ is worth giving it all up. His church is worth giving it all up. Your lost family, friends, they're worth giving it all up. Recall the amazing gospel. Retell your same old story.